My name is Kent. I'm one of the pastors here, and I find it irresistible that whenever Wooly nods his head, I nod my head too. I don't know if anybody else. I'm delighted that you're here today to continue in this series of, about strength. How do we find a core strength that carries us, that helps our faith to grow and mature? And um, we're going to dig into that by looking at a passage about the return of Jesus from Matthew chapter 24. So I'd like to invite you all to take out a Bible and read along with me. If you didn't bring a Bible with you, um, there's some Bibles in the chairs, or you can open up a Bible on your app, on your phone, or your tablet. Um, if you don't have a good Bible, I highly recommend the church app that we have because it's got a great Bible on it. So you can go to that and open up that Bible. Matthew chapter 24. So we're in the New Testament, first book, Matthew, 24th chapter. Matthew 24, starting with verse 1. Jesus left the temple and was walking away when his disciples came up to him to call his attention to its buildings. Do you see all these things? Jesus asked. Truly I tell you, not one stone here will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately. Tell us, they said, When will this happen, and what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? Jesus answered, Watch out that no one deceives you, for many will call in my name, claiming, I am the Messiah, and will deceive many. You will hear of wars and rumors of wars, but see to it that you are not alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise up against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginning of birth pains. Then you will be handed over to be persecuted and put to death. You will be hated by all nations because of me. At that time, many will turn away from the faith and will betray and hate each other. And many false prophets will appear and deceive many people. Because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. But the one who stands firm to the end will be saved." And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. And then jump down to verse 36. But about that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven nor the Son of Man, but only the Father. As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, up to the day that Noah entered the ark, and they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them away. This is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. Two men will be in the field, one will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding with a handmill, one will be taken and the other left. Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know on what day your Lord will come. But understand this, if the owner of the house had known at what time the night the thief was coming, he would have kept watch and would not have let his house be broken into. So you also must be ready, because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. This is God's word, and it's true, and we can rely on it. The first time I met this guy was when I was a student at Iowa State University. And he was standing out by the Memorial Union with his bullhorn, yelling at the students as they passed by. 
Now, maybe it wasn't exactly this guy, but it was a guy that looked just like him, kind of unkempt in his appearance, and he had a sandwich board about some message, and he had a bullhorn, and he was yelling to try to draw a crowd to listen to him, and nobody listened. Everybody kind of just walked by him. I remember that as he ranted, the end is near, I was wondering if he had some kind of inside information. Does he know something the rest of it doesn't know? And I was actually walking along with a friend. I turned to my friend and says, how does he know that? And my friend just said, just bluntly, he doesn't. And I took as a cue from my friend and his quick response that we aren't really supposed to take seriously people who stand on the corner with sandwich boards and billboards. We're not supposed to listen to them. They often stand there, and as they stand there, they have a message that's attached to this warning, and that message is repent. Repent, the end is near. And uh, I ran into this same guy, actually, on a street corner in Toronto years later, and he was disheveled, sandwich board, repent, the end is near, and bullhorn yelling at the people as they passed. And this guy had some very specific uh, ideas about repentance And he actually was naming some of the people who needed to repent. This is what he said. Repent, zombies, perverts, cannibals, Satanists, stoners, lawyers, and the French. (laughs) So consider yourself warned if you're in any of those categories. The image of the end times prophet has become so pervasive that it actually has kind of entered into pop culture. So we hear people refer to this, and perhaps some of you remember this episode. Any Simpson fans here that you want to admit being Simpsons fans? Uh, the, the title of this episode was Thank God for Doomsday. And in this particular episode, Homer Simpson had become convinced that the end was near, and so he did some calculating to try to figure out exactly when it was going to happen. And his estimate was that it was going to happen on May 18 at 3.15 p.m., which was about one week from the time that he figured that out. And so he immediately went out to the people of Springfield, and he started to warn them and to try to get them to believe in this. And they didn't really, he didn't really have much effect in doing that until there was some kind of crazy blimp accident. And then everybody was immediately convinced, and they started to follow him. And they followed him right up to May 18 at 3.16 p.m., and when the end didn't come, they all abandoned him. So Homer figured he had to go recalculate things, and he discovered that he made a mistake in his math, and he was off by a few hours. The end was actually going to come on May 19th, just a few hours later than that. And this might actually present one of the biggest problems we have when we go to talk about the end times. A lot of people have tried to calculate exactly when this is going to be and have been very sure about it, and then they turned out to be wrong. And when you get to be my age, and maybe some of your ages, you can remember different times in our history when people made an, uh, an absolute prediction. The end of time is coming, and it's coming at this time, and be ready. And people would sell all their goods and go off to the mountains and wait for the end to come. And as we know, as far as we can tell, it hasn't happened yet. Jesus has not returned. The Bible tells us that nobody actually knows when this is going to happen. So all, all these predictions some kind, sometimes uh, kind of are a little dubious. I did come across one guy with a sign that I thought was, uh, nailed it. Maybe this is how we should talk about the end times. Jesus is coming. We don't know exactly when. But we're pretty sure it's soon. All of Scripture seems to indicate this. 
And this might be my summary for the whole chapter of Matthew 24. The end is near-ish. We sent out a little survey on our app this week about, do you believe that Jesus is going to come in your lifetime? I didn't get a chance to look at that yet this morning, but how many of you thought that Jesus was going to come in your lifetime? Okay, so we're older and wiser, some of us. Maybe we think our end is closer, so we're not sure if Jesus is going to make it before our end actually comes. But most of us have a sense that Jesus is actually coming pretty soon. So this is what I want to look at today, and we're going to do it by using this system that we've been using for the last several weeks. We're going to start by looking at the drama of Matthew 24. What is the story that's being told in this chapter? And then we're going to go to what are the truths that come out of that, the doctrine that we can pull out of that. And then we're going to apply that in doxology or praise and discipleship or how we are formed as people. So the story that actually unfolds in Matthew 24 is very straightforward. It's actually a very simple story. Jesus is walking with his disciples and he draws attention to the temple and he says, look, one day none of this will be here anymore. One day this will all be gone. This intrigues the disciples, as it might intrigue you, and they pulled Jesus aside later and had a little private conversation. So, Jesus, when is this going to happen? This sounds like quite an event. When is it going to come? And Jesus tells them, pay attention. Now, this is important. Jesus actually uses this phrase a lot. Take heed, pay attention, watch, be watchful. Jesus is kind of constantly inviting his disciples to say, you know, be alert, pay attention to what's going on. And he says that in this case. Be attention, because people are going to actually begin to fixate on this question about timing. When is the kingdom coming? When is Jesus returning? When will all of this be over? And they're going to start to look for clues that might give them an indication when this is going to go. And then people are going to start making predictions about when this is going to happen. Jesus says, pay attention, because some will say, oh, look, Jesus is over here. The time has come. Or someone else is going to say, oh, look, over here, it's Jesus. The end is here. Jesus has returned. Jesus says, pay attention because there's going to be a lot of deceit. People will be deceived. Be alert. Don't be fooled, he says. Because we really don't know when Jesus is going to come again. One of the major focuses on this particular story is in the kind of unexpected nature of this return that they don't really know when it's going to come. And there's been one image that's intrigued me ever since I was a kid. I remember this image. Two men walking up a hill, one disappears and one's left standing still. You know that phrase? It's not actually a biblical phrase. It comes from a song by Larry Norman. Remember him? I wish we'd all been ready. And a lot of the images from that song come from kind of the 80s when this was really kind of ramped up to a fevered pitch of people expecting all the signs are coming together. The end must be coming very soon. This was the song. Life was filled with guns and war, and all of us got trampled on the floor. The children died, the days grew cold, a piece of bread would buy a bag of gold. A man and wife asleep in bed, she hears a noise and turns her head. He's gone. I wish we'd all been ready. This is a song based on Matthew 24. And the emphasis on alertness and readiness gels completely with what Jesus was telling his disciples. As you're thinking about this time coming, he warns them, there's going to be a lot of deceit, and nobody knows exactly when this is going to happen. But pay attention and be ready, he says. Jesus is coming again, and we must be ready for his return. Be ready, 
This is how the whole story concludes. Be ready. The Son of Man is coming at an hour that you do not expect. This is the story of Matthew 24. Jesus is coming. Be ready. Now, I think this is a pretty simple story. It's pretty direct and straightforward. The doctrine that has come out of this story is some of the most complex doctrine in all of Christian faith. And people love to talk about end times, or the technical word would be eschatology, the last things. And people seem to be fascinated by trying to predict timing. They look at the story that Jesus has told in Matthew 24, and they say, can we make these signs line up so that we might predict the time? Many people are so fascinated about this that they explore these theories endlessly, and I'm going to grant this, that they they do a lot better job than Homer Simpson, but even with their best efforts, we still have a multitude of opinions about when this will come and many options about the timing of this. I'm not that interested, actually, if I confess to you in all those theories. And the main reason I'm not that interested in is because the Bible says, nobody knows when. Nobody knows. You're going to be surprised. It's going to be an unexpected thing. But there are two things that are very fascinating to me in this passage that are are truths that I think come out. The first one is the word parousia. This is a word that's used four times in this passage and nowhere else in Scripture. It's a Greek word that means coming. There's going to be a coming. And the Bible is absolutely clear about this. Jesus is coming. There's no doubt about it. And this actually isn't a truth that comes only from this passage. It's a truth that is throughout all of Scripture. Jesus is coming. There's going to be a parousia. Jesus came once. He was a baby. But he's not a baby anymore. And he's not a man in the, hanging on the cross broken. And he's not dead in the grave. He's raised from the dead. And he's sent it into heaven. He's sitting on the right hand of God the Father. That's where he is right now. But he's not going to stay there. The Bible is very clear that one day... Jesus is coming to earth again. There will be a parousia, a coming. This is one of the great truths, I think, that comes up out of this passage is obvious. The second thing that interests me in this passage is this. Jesus is coming, and he's coming for a purpose. He's coming to accomplish something. And all of Scripture also reinforces this. See, some people have thought that eschatology, the study of last things, is kind of like an appendix, kind of like an add-on. You just put it at the end of the Scripture, kind of like a wrap-up. It's actually not that at all. It's actually something that's woven throughout the whole story of Scripture. From Genesis to Revelation, there's this picture that Jesus is coming again, and that when he comes, he's going to come for a purpose. Now, the reason I'm picking up on this is one word that's fascinating to me in the text, and it's the word telos. This is another Greek word, and it means end. Now, end can have a couple of different meanings. End can be something like, you know, the last thing in a sequence, like it's finished, it's done, like just a sequence of things are over. Like the batter struck out, and that was the end of the game, okay? That's a sequence of things. That's how we often think of end. Something's over, it's done, it's completed, that, that, that kind of thing. Even when I'm describing this, I'm already hinting at the second meaning of end. End also has this, the uh, idea of, Something has been fulfilled. A mission accomplished. A goal or aim has been reached. That's the end, the telos. The reason for something to exist has been fulfilled. In Matthew 24, 
end is used a couple different ways, but to me it seems like the most clear use of the word telos in this passage is accomplishing a purpose. Jesus is coming again, and when he comes, he's going to accomplish a purpose. This is actually how the Bible looks at all of history, that all of history is moving. This is how we see things as Christian, that there's not randomness to history, that all of history is moving toward an end, toward a purpose, trying to accomplish something. Now, we could look at history in some big chunks. Let's do it. We, we sometimes do this. The first chunk of history would be like creation. Everything was made. Second chunk of history, the fall. There was a grand rebellion, disobedience, and we fell into sin. Next chunk of history, promise. From the moment of the fall, there's this promise that comes again and again that God is still working. God is still going to accomplish something even in this fallen state. And then comes this chunk of history called redemption where God actually enters into human history to begin the process of fixing everything that's broken. This is where Jesus appears in Scripture the first time. He comes to set right what is wrong. He begins this redemption. And then there's a final chunk of history, and that's consummation. That is what we're talking about when we're talking about the end. That there is a time coming when all of history will have moved to one point in which God's purpose is absolutely and completely fulfilled once and for all. This is what Matthew is talking about in Matthew 24. There is an end coming. That end is accomplishment, completion, consummation. All that God wants to do will one day be finished and completed. Jesus on that day will say, it is finished, the end. Now, there was one other time when Jesus said, it is finished. You know when, right? So he's on the cross right before he died, and he says, it is finished. What's he talking about there? Is it finally completed? He's talking about this work of redemption. That's Jesus came and died in our place so our sins could be washed clean. And then he was buried and he rose again from the dead, conquering sin and death, and then he ascended into heaven. But history continued. It wasn't over. God was still working to accomplish his purposes and has continued to work up until this day to accomplish his purpose. And then one day, Jesus will come again, and then he'll say, it is finished. Everything has finally been accomplished according to God's purpose. This is the day that we're looking toward. This is the truth that comes for me up out of Matthew 24 that just is so encouraging to me. Um, I was just saying to Mary yesterday, I am sick of listening to people and hearing about their problems. You ever get to that point? I get sick of listening to the news and hearing about the trouble in the world. I get sick of people that I care about a lot and they're having struggles and trials and tribulations. I'm sick of these problems. I'm looking forward to a day when all those problems will be fixed when everything that is broken will be set right, when all of God's purposes will be completed. And there is a day when that will happen, and that is the day when Jesus comes again. Until then, we have this longing or this hope that we're looking toward this climax. This is how Paul talks about it. Karen already touched on this in Woolley's Bible verse, Philippians 1. I thank my God every time I remember you and all my prayers for all of you. I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Being confident of this, 
that he who began a good work in you will carry it out to completion until the day of Jesus Christ. What does this tell me about God's work in history and God's work in our lives? It tells me that God is working to accomplish his purpose and he's never going to stop working until it's completed, until it is finished, until we get to the end, the purpose for all of this. And now we've just moved from doctrine to doxology, right? We've just moved to praise. Praise God that he has his hands in our life, that he is working to accomplish his purpose, and nothing will ever stop him from accomplishing that. Thank God that he is continually working and that he will not stop working until Jesus comes again. And when Jesus comes again, it will be perfect. It will be consummated. It will be completed. Thank God the end is near. And when I say it that way, I am thinking not just near in time, like the end is coming soon, but near in accomplishment, near in attaining the purpose, that God attaining his purpose in our lives and in this world, it's not very far off. It doesn't have very long to go, and God's perfect will and perfect plan will be fulfilled, and that causes us to give praise. That truth, I think, also shapes us as disciples. This isn't some abstract idea or truth about what God is doing. It's a reality about what God is doing in our lives from day to day. So how does this shape us? I think Matthew 24 addresses this quite clearly, actually. Remember parousia, coming? This word is used here in Matthew 24 and nowhere else in Scripture, but it's also used in other literature around the same time as this. And whenever it was used in that literature, it was always used about a coming ruler or a coming king. And it always highlighted kind of the unique nature of what happens when the ruler or the king comes into the community. In order for that to happen, the community would get into gear preparing for that. You didn't just have the king show up in your community and don't do anything about it. You got yourself ready. There's actually some interesting literature on this. I'm just going to read you one sentence about the preparation that they made in order for the king to come. The customary honors of the parousia of a ruler are these. Flattering addresses and tributes. So you make nice speeches. Delicious delicacies to eat. You provide donkeys to carry their baggage. Improvements to the streets golden wreaths or money, and feeding of the sacred crocodiles. These are the things you did when you were getting ready for the king to arrive. This was some special work. The parousia of Jesus, the coming of Christ, as described in Matthew 24, speaks about his coming in the same way. There's this kind of high alertness. Everybody's attentive. Everybody's watching. How do we get ready for Jesus to come again? What do we do? Well, it seems clear one of the first things we don't do is spend too much time calculating exactly when this is supposed to happen. I think we have this tendency, and that's why Jesus tells us, you know, repeatedly, don't, nobody knows. The angels don't know. I don't even know. Only the Father knows. Don't spend too much time calculating when this is going to happen. Instead, pay attention. And the items that he's telling us to pay attention to here, it's not pay attention to the troubles, the 
problems in the world. He says, you know, there's going to be wars. There's going to be rumors of wars. There's going to be people popping up here and there saying, this is the kind of desperate situation that requires the return of Christ. Jesus actually says this, I think, to tell us not to pay attention to that, what's going on. What we're called to pay attention to is this. Pay attention to God's promise to set it right. God's promise to bring fulfillment. God's promises to never let us go. These are the things that we're called to pay attention to. Pay attention to the fact that everything is working to accomplish God's mission in our life and in this world. Those are the things to be attentive to. I pick up on some of this also in Paul when he talks about troubles in life and talks about where our attention should be. I'm thinking of Romans 8, starting with verse 18. Paul says, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. What does he want us to focus on in that particular verse? On my sufferings? He says, no, your trouble is nothing compared to the thing that God is planning to accomplish. Nothing compared to the thing that the glory uh, that God will reveal in us. And then he goes on to explain why this is the case. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up from the present time until now. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we are saved. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. The whole world including us, is longing for Christ to return. We're longing for God to set everything right, to fix what is broken. We can't wait for that day to come. And in the meantime, Jesus says, look in hope. Pay attention to God's promises. This is what you have to hold on to. And you might not actually see the promise being fulfilled in this moment. That's not hope. If you can see the answer, it's not hope. Be alert Stay focused. Remember God's promises. Have hope. Persevere. Stay strong. These are the kinds of things that he's calling us to be shaped as disciples while we're waiting for him to come again. I have been fascinated by um, Dunkirk and the excavation of all the troops from Dunkirk. You know this story? There's a movie that just came out this weekend about it. I have not yet got to see it, so don't ruin it for me. But... um, one of the things that comes out of this story is the picture of desperation is like a weapon. If you think there is no way out, if you think there is no escape, if you think nothing is ever going to get better, if you think there's no way to fix what's broken, you become desperate. You become filled with despair. Hope is a gift. The gift of Matthew 24 is hope. It's not an angry rant to try to get everybody to come and clean up their act and come to Christ. It's hope to those of us who believe to say that there is a day when Jesus is coming. It's soon. Until that day, don't lose hope. Don't give up. So I don't know if you're going to run into this guy anytime soon in your travels, but when you do, I'm wondering if you'll look at this sign with anxiety or with peace. 
If you'll look at this sign and you'll be troubled or you'll be calmed. You'll look at the sign and you'll think that's good news or bad news. When I look at this sign now, I think that's really good news. Because Jesus is coming. He's coming soon. And when he comes, all of his purposes will be accomplished. And that gives me strength. Lord God, we come before you today and we give you thanks for your love for us. And we give you thanks for your watchful care. Thank you for the truth of your word. Thank you for the gift of your Holy Spirit. And God, for the gift of your Son. And we pray, come Lord Jesus, come quickly. In his name.